Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Seek Outside podcast. Today, Kevin and I are joined by Rob Parkins, the public access coordinator for backcountry hunters and anglers. Rob is a former fly fishing guide and outfitter, an avid fly tire, a Labrador owner, and a boomerang national champion. We get into all sorts of topics in this episode, including water access to Clouser Minnow, spay casting, and how to catch a boomerang with your feet. So please enjoy this conversation with Rob Parkins. Awesome. So let's kind of get into this um, today. You want to start it off, Dennis? Um, Or should I? I mean, it's Dennis, Kevin, and Rob Parkins today. And Rob works for BHA. Known Rob for a few years. Rob is a avid fly fisherman. So how are you doing, Rob? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. How about you? Yeah. Are you guys surviving the pandemic? We are not just surviving, we're thriving. Excellent. Excellent. The, the social distancing is my natural is my natural thing. <laughs> it is nice how that works. Um, you know, since this all happened, I really haven't been going out much and talking to many people. And one of the things I haven't been doing is is just is going out and having fun outside just between work and life. It's just, um, and then plus all the snow and the trailheads being packed that Dennis and I were talking about earlier is haven't been able to get out and have some fun as, as much as I want to. And, and this weekend I went uh, and floated the South Fork of the Snake. We did, we did the Canyon, which is about 23 miles. I think we did, we floated looking for mushrooms and, the mushroom hunt, hunting wasn't great, but uh, was with a good friend and had my two dogs running around. And when I woke up Monday, I felt more refreshed than I have in months. So, um, yeah, I think I need to do more social distancing, but outside in the woods. Yeah, we've we've been uh, we've been frequenting trails in town that we've never been to before, right? Uh, and. I don't want to give away all my secrets, but a lot of these kind of multi-use trails that nobody maybe uses, right? So, so instead of dealing with groups and have the ourselves, you see, uh, maybe see a dirt bike or something, you know. Uh, so right. that's been refreshing to get out and kind of sample some new new areas that we probably might not have gone to, you know. Nice. So it's been been a perk, I guess. Um, yeah, we're trying to do that too. It's tough. I mean, there's just people everywhere. Yeah. There is a lot. There is a lot of people on the trails that I've went to, but, you know, if you really want to uh, keep yourself um, busy while social distancing, you should ask Pam about home remodeling projects. Uh, no, just uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm not going to let her watch or listen to this podcast now. <laughs> we, we've done a few weekends of uh, home improvement projects and are working on some other stuff now. Um, our yard is a priority or our Labradors are tearing it up and, They've been relentless this spring, so we're trying to figure that out. But we, we're we're going to do a deck rebuild and some other stuff as well. So um, that's one of the reasons why I'm not getting out as much as I want to. So, so the list has been created. You just want to add to it? Yes, yes that's yes. exactly it. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, so how's things going in the BHA world? What all have you been uh, working on there? You are the water public land. What's the official title? 
Well, when I started uh, working for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers uh, a little over two years ago, I was hired as the public waters access coordinator um, to work on water access issues around the country. And it's not to say that it isn't a lot of work, but um, there are other things that we can do that don't necessarily um, are just water and we don't have anyone working on it specifically. So uh, late last year, uh, at the end of 2019, we changed my title to uh, public or just a public access coordinator. So I'm going to start doing some terrestrial uh, land land access issues as well as they pop up. Um, but right now, you know, with the pandemic, things are a little slow as far as some of the things that we do, as far as policy and getting together and doing some of the events we have. And that's just because of a uh, social, social distancing guidelines and just not being able to go anywhere. And unfortunately we canceled all our events through June. So that started in February and that includes our rendezvous, North American rendezvous that was coming up in Missoula the first week of June. So something that usually takes a lot of our time and a lot of preparation. Uh, I don't have a larger role as, as a lot of the people within the organization do, but that is that is a huge lift and a, a big amount of time that's spent trying to make sure that the rendezvous goes smoothly and and the you know 1500 plus people that we have attend for it they have a great time and everything goes well um but i would say on on the waterfront what we're working on probably the biggest thing right now is it's 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 in the news is backcountry hunters and anglers join the adobe whitewater uh association and new mexico wildlife federation and filed a lawsuit against um, the New Mexico Game and Fish Commission to repeal the rule of um, having stream segments designated non-navigable and therefore off, off limits to the public. And that was um, introduced in March, the lawsuit, and accepted by the state Supreme Court in, in, in April. And so we're waiting to see what will happen there, but we're we're excited to see something something big happening down there. Can can you give people kind of a background of what happened in New Mexico? Because um, that was all fairly recent, right? Um, not necessarily fairly recent. So this whole thing started in 2015. Um, the state legislature approved a bill that um, allowed people to. Um, get their stream segments declared navigable or non-navigable, I should say, is that, you know, landowners on private ranches, they wanted their stream segments designated non-navigable and therefore off limits to the public. So that happened in 2015. And it's kind of weird when it happened, there was a big fight. Uh, the attorney general at the time, uh, talked about the constitution, constitutional rights, and how the public of New Mexico have a right to access all rivers. And then after this, the bill was passed, um, the next attorney general, Hector Balderas, he, he issued an opinion as well. Um, and it says that the constitution does not allow an interpretation of the bill that would exclude the public from using public water on or running through private property for recreational uses is that the public is accessible without trespassing on private property. 
So it was pretty much said by the law of the land that the, the law is unconstitutional. You can't, you, you can't allow people to do this, but it's something New Mexico is, is a little different as far as moneyed interests in out of state landowners trying to control things. And there's one landowner in particular, he's an oil and gas attorney and owns, um, owns some ranches. He's started, um, a nonprofit that's, um, that lobbies, um, he has an outfitting business. He he donates a lot of money to the gubernatorial campaign for the, the local governor, and he's fought really hard. And in 2017, after these, um, um, the first set of stream segments were petitioned, there were five of them that they, that they introduced to the game commission as far as being designated non-navigable. He was involved in, I believe, three of the five of them. And they were deemed non-navigable and, and therefore off limits to the public. So we went through that in 2017. And then we started fighting, talking to the governor at the time about the commission overturning the regulations. That was in late 2018. In 2019, uh, after talks, the New Mexico Game and Fish Commission actually put a 90-day moratorium on the the regulations that um, they weren't going to uh, enforce the law at the time and they were going to review it and they were going to wait for an opinion from the attorney general on whether they should go forward if it was constitutional. Um, in September of 2019, we didn't get an opinion, but we did get a memo from the attorney general and it says that any language in the new regulation which attempts to prohibit access to the public waters in New Mexico is constitutional, unconstitutional, and unenforceable. Um, so what that means is we need to start looking at what's going on. Um, and convoluted mess uh, commission is a politically pointed um, position. The governor appoints everybody to to the commission, including the head in December, the governor removed jo Joanna Prukoff, who was the chairwoman, um, very talented woman, um, knew a lot about what was going on. She has a wildlife management background. She hunts, she fishes. And um, although we were told no, the, what everybody thinks is that she was removed for trying to, to get this regulation repealed. Um, so then they appointed someone else who experience with wildlife management, doesn't hunt or fish. And it just got to the point where something needed to be done. It's, it's kind of tough. I know that when I started with BHA in 2017 and talking to the board down there, everybody wanted a lawsuit right away. And it's not cheap. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time, a lot of resources, and it's not necessarily always always successful. If we look at the time and the work that the Utah Stream Access Coalition, everything that they did down there, they were successful, but they spent a lot of money, had a lot of industry support, kind of the opposite of what we were having down in New Mexico. Um, so we kind of put that on the back burner until this lawsuit started. It just it came up where we were. Um, we were asked to participate along with Adobe Whitewater and, and the New Mexico Wildlife Federation. Got it. That's where we are now.
So now is there a certain, when they want to designate them non-navigable, it, does it, is there a certain criteria, like it does have to be a smaller stream, or, or could you take something like the Gunnison going through someone's orchard and be like, I want this non-navigable? What they did is, if you if you were to look at all the, the, the five filings form as they went back in at the time of New Mexico statehood, the rivers were not deemed navigable. So they went back to see if that there was any commerce or trade on the river, something that would designate it under the federal law of being a navigable waterway. And they were able to show that to the letter of the law on that stream segment that it was was not a, a non it or I should say it is a non-navigable waterway. But that's it that's different than the constitution for New Mexico reads on how the public has access to any waterway. Right. That just means that no one's used it for commerce at any point. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Um, in, in 1907, this is a good thing, the Territorial Legislature of New Mexico declared that all waters belong to the public and are subject to appropriation for beneficial use. And then in 1911, they adopted a state constitution that says every natural stream perennial or torrential within the state of New Mexico is hereby, hereby declared to belong to the public. And, and even if a stream is real small, it can still hold relatively nice fishing and, oh, yeah. and be a fine, you know, sight fishing little creek. I, I remember um, at BHA last year, the Senator uh, Hendrick from New Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, he, was in, he, he was conversing with Giannis from Meat Eater and they were talking about this little stream and this big trout they found in it right and, and but i mean it was it was like the trout was almost the size of the width of the stream so and that happens i mean that's um i don't know if it's a if it's a well hidden secret but yeah a lot of big fish come out of small rivers i mean if you were to go fishing somewhere on a small stream you would be surprised and especially in new mexico and and part of that is because there are pieces of private land that are just refuges for fish and wildlife um, in, in fish in general. And there's not a lot of cold water, you know, perennial, perennial year water, uh, cold water streams in New Mexico. That's one of the one of the big arguments that we run up against, especially um, with the landowners, with the Outfitters and Guides Association down there, is that 70 percent of all the water in New Mexico is on public land. So. Why do we want to look and, and try to take that 30% from the landowner and allow people to uh, trample on private property rights? Well, you know, 70% of it, is it fishable water? Does it hold any fish or is it cold enough to hold trout? And then, you know, it makes a big difference as far as the water is. And we know that the West was, when it was founded, people gravitated towards water, whether it was for agriculture or if it was for uh raising cattle or whatever the case may be is they needed water for transportation, for irrigation to, to just survive. It's the lifeblood of the West. And, you know, they say that that 30% that is on private land, um, that most of it already is, is only uh, intermittent streams where the only time they have water in them is when there's torrential downpours or from runoff and that goes away. Well, 
you know, if that's the case, we're only looking at a, a small percentage of water within the state that people are looking to access in the first place and that they may hold trout or some kind of sport fish that people want to fish for. Um, the, the five that they were able to kind of get, get this ruling on, um, are they, are they, or were they previously used like heavily used streams for fishing? Um, I think a lot of it on ranches, but there was a lot of, a lot of public access on them. Um, which ones that they, that the segments were on, were on the Shama, the Penasco, the Membrays and the Alamosa. And uh, a couple of them did get quite a bit of traffic. And that was one of the things where it was just, it, it, there are also on ranches where, you know, for one to, for example, on the Shama, which is a big commercial operation for guided, guided fishing, you know, 500 bucks a day, they just, they, they, they put a lot of work into the restoration of the river and stocking it with large fish for their clients and they just didn't want people walking through. But the law is in certain spots is it, it, it's difficult, if not impossible to get to those stretches of the river or at least where all the restoration work and the fish have been stocked. So it probably wasn't being impacted by the public as much. Interesting. Just kind of tough. It's, um, a lot of the landowners feel that the that the fishermen that are out there, the public at large, are are not following the rules and are disrespecting private property rights. And I think that it's probably a small percentage of people, but obviously we know, you know, just being in the outdoors, that it's that small percentage that don't have any respect for private property rights that ruin it for everybody. Well, uh, there's a small percentage that are dicks, even on yeah. public land. You know, which they, they own. You know, they're just yeah. yeah, they are. I mean, we heard some funny stories about you know people. As it says, the law in New Mexico is as long as you can get to the stream without crossing private property, um, that you could use them. That uh, we've heard people talk about if an angler come up from the stream and ask to use their bathroom, um, you know, or leaving litter and having parties or starting a bonfire right there. Just use common sense. <laughs> Yeah, and, and don't be a dick. Um, <laughs> like like hiking up the, by the way. <laughs> so water laws in the West are super complex anyway, you know, from a state to state to state to state issue, right? It is. And it's very important if you are an angler or someone that uses um, uses water for canoeing or for hunting or for whatever you're going to use it for that. If you're going to go to another state, make sure you know the law because it is the laws are vastly different from state to state. Now you brought up canoeing. Do you have any plans to do another uh, Boundary Waters trip anytime soon? Man, I'd love to. Um, I keep talking about it and trying to recruit some people. I want to be a little more aggressive. Um, you know, when when you and I and our wives Pam and Angie did it. We, the original route we had planned when we were at the outfitter, um, they looked at the map and said, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's fine. We had a great time. It's, it's an awesome place. It's special. And, um, 
I would like to get into some of the smaller ponds and lakes that not many people go to and just uh, focus on fishing. Did That's you did you take a fly rod with you when you were up there? I did. I took um, I brought three fly rods with me, all um, kind of species specific and did pretty well. The first place that we camped for a couple nights because we we put in um, and it started raining about an hour after we put in on the water and it was getting late. Our first portage just to get to the river was fairly long. I want to say it was close to a half mile, wasn't it, Kevin? And we had to do we had to yeah. do that twice just to put in. So we grabbed the first campsite, which was awesome. And but it rained for two days. So we just decided to hang out there and stay dry and and have fun. And we were camped right next to this big rock on the water. And I got five species of fish on the fly rod from that rock. That's um, cool. Which was awesome. Got pike, smallmouth, I got a walleye, um, and panfish. It was just it it was a blast. It was so much fun. Did and then you we use the same fly for all of them, or was it different flies for each one? No, different flies. Um, I got bit off quite a bit using a small fly when the when the baby pike were around, so I had to switch to a bigger fly with a with a wire leader. But then I I got the walleye on a black leech on an intermediate line, which was that was the plan. It was I'm going to use an intermediate line and in small leech patterns and that's how i'm going to get walleye and it worked and then everything else was on the clouser minnow um which if if you don't fly fish the clouser minnow is probably the number one fly to especially catch uh, warm water species but also for cold water species lefty cray said that he caught over 115 species of fish on that one fly so um it works for everything and it definitely worked in the boundary waters what about smallmouth? Smallmouth, that's what I, the, that was the clouds are minnow. That's when I when I specifically target smallmouth, I will not use any other fly except for a clouser. That's good. Really? Will not do it. Someone played amateur biologist at our local reservoir and decided to take and put a bunch of uh, smallmouth in there. And so now we have catch as many as you want um, as they're causing a lot of harm with the other species at the moment. So I got my fly rod out yesterday, but I still got kind of commandeered into moving things that are going in and out of the house around in the evening. So I didn't get a chance to go out. But one of these nights I have to uh, go down there and start really just trying to become a good smallmouth fly fisherman. Definitely. Um, that's the place to do it. If you have fish, I mean, that's what's great about smallmouth is they love to eat. They just, they eat and they eat and there's plenty of them. And, you know, if you have a small clouds or even just a woolly bugger, the, they eat them pretty well. And it's a great way to, great way to have fun and practice. Oh, they'll do on a woolly as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, smallmouth will eat almost anything. Okay. All right, I got, I got follow-up questions. Um, what size? Clouser, like are you using? Were you using a bunch of different sizes? I uh, probably I don't have my I don't have my um, my pouch here with all of them, but I would say probably a size two or a four. That's probably what I use mostly. Okay. And then uh, colors. I mean, I tie small ones on size eight hooks. Um, you, 
one I use for trout is a baby rainbow pattern and it's probably two to two and a half inches long. And it's just, um, some white olive and pink bucktail and, you know, then I go bigger, but I would say probably twos and fours are the most, most commonly used. Now, are you tying most of these yourself or are, is it a little bit of, cause you also are doing the BHA fly tying thing virtually, right? Yes. Yeah. We kicked that off last week, Friday night ties and, um, went pretty well, but I do, I, I only fish flies that I tie, um, started that i i started fly tying well to 20 something years ago but it's in the last few years i've decided that i'm just gonna i'm just gonna fish flies that i tie um wire leader talk to me about that what do you want to know um just like just like what what kind are you using you know or, or like what does that look like um, so I use the Rio products, tieable wire. Um, okay, okay. and so it's it, it, about 15, 20 pounds. You could use that and you just do a blood knot to your leader with, um, I don't know, six to 10 inches of, of bite wire. And then you could tie a knot to the fly or incorporate a swivel on it as well. It doesn't matter when you're getting into those fish and you're, you're fishing flies that are so big. Yeah. It, they're going to eat it. They don't, they're not looking at that wire. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I was just wondering if you, if you were tying them on, like using that tieable stuff. Yeah, yeah Orvis makes these bite leaders that is a, it, it's a stiffer it's a stiffer wire, and it's a I I think it's eight or ten inches, and it has a twist on each end, so you unravel it and put your fly on it and do it that way, and those work really well also. Okay. But there's there's plenty of different ones, but the tieable wire is nice. So, so I mean, you, you were talking about real products, and I looked you up on real products, and I did not know you could catch a boomerang with your feet. <laughs> yes, I can. That's a trick that uh, Kevin Farron, who is the Montana BHA coordinator, taught me. <laughs> nice, nice. I'll, I'll um, have to that, see that. No, that's something from a long time ago. Thanks for bringing it up. But um, long time ago. 30 plus years ago that um, I got into an interesting sport of boomerang throwing and was um, fortunate enough to be good on it and, and traveled the world uh, on the U.S. team. I was on the, the world championship team. I've been a Guinness Book of World Record holder, national champion individually. So it's um, it's interesting. That's what happens when you don't have front friends. Is <laughs> really? You have to take up sports that... Um, you know, you don't have to throw it to someone. It comes back to you. It's, it's the same reason I have Labradors because I can throw something out and they'll bring it back. So, so okay, this whole thing's kind of aligning. You just, you just yeah. made the key statement of not <laughs> friends sitting in your sitting in your place tying flies all winter, uh, balloon fly fisherman throwing the boomerang so you can catch exactly catch yeah. and catch. Dottie, how do you, how do, uh, Dottie Herman, Dottie, I'm a loner. I'm a rebel. <laughs> how uh, how do you win a national championship for boomerang? Uh, are we really going to get this far off? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just I'm just uh, curious now. Uh, yeah, I don't even know so, it was a thing. So there's um, start off a, a boomerang to be competitive has to go out at least 20 meters and come back for it to be um, for most events. And there's a couple events that uh, require distance as well. But in boomerang throwing, there are seven different events, at least when I was competing. I believe 
believe that some of the events and some of the rules have changed, but back then there was, and I should also say is that in every event, you also had to catch the boomerang except for accuracy. In accuracy, there's a, there's a circle on the ground, a bullseye, that's two meters and that's 10 points. And then after that, they spread out another two meters and the points go down eight, six, four, two, then zero. So with accuracy, you throw your boomerang 20 meters, comes back and wherever it lands is how many points you get. Then there's Australian round, which is a combination of accuracy, distance and catching. So you get points based on how far out it goes. And there's spotters on lines at 20, 30, 40 and 50 meters. And so you get points based on how far it goes. And then you get points for catching it and where you caught it. Um, Another one was maximum time aloft where you throw it. And at the time when I started, it was called, it was unlimited where there wasn't a circle on the field. There's now there's a hundred meter circle. When we first started, it was you threw the boomerang up in the air and when you caught it is the time you had and really crazy technology that went into this and the way they work and the way thermals work and the world record was over 14 minutes in the air before it came Whoa. down. Whoa. And then, um, and then you caught it or someone yeah, did. And then they caught it. Yeah. The, wow. the person who did that, it, it's absolutely incredible to see these things. They just, they just sit there and they'll catch a thermal and they'll sit there and you'll watch them rise. And there's been plenty of them that just disappeared. Um, and now, and so the problem with that is you have a tournament, you have an event, you know, if everybody starts doing this, if the weather's favorable, you could spend all day doing this. And so sure. they made it so it has to be within a hundred meter circle. And I believe that the record for that is over two minutes within within a hundred meter circle with a catch, which is pretty neat. And then what else is our trick catching where Kevin mentioned catching it with your feet where you had a there was a bunch of different catches that you had to do behind your back, under your leg, and then doubling, which was the same thing, but throwing two boomerangs at once. And then the last two events were called fast catch and endurance. Um, fast catch is where you threw and caught the boomerang five times, and you see how long it took you. Um, it's pretty incredible to watch. Um, has, like I said, has to go out 20 meters. I set the world record in that event four times in my lowest round that I did in a tournament for a world record was just over 16 seconds. Do you have wow. any video of this? So you have to think about that. 16 seconds. I threw and caught some that went out 25 meters five times. And yeah. then what's that? You're blowing my mind. I didn't even know this was a thing. And the cool thing is the record now is in, in the sub 15 second range. It's, it's pretty crazy. And then endurance is, the last event, and that's where you do the same thing, but you do it for five minutes in total, and you get your total amount of catches. And I had the record with that with 75, I think. It's now, which is crazy that it hasn't gone up. All the other records have been beaten pretty soundly throughout this as technology gets better, as people get better. And um, the record for endurance has only gone up, I believe, a couple catches, which is kind of weird. Um, wow. But, yeah, that uh, completely different lifetime ago. Um, but it, it is kind of neat. It's something that I did and, and, and everybody at work breaks my balls about it because 
this year in Boise in 2019, the United States Boomerang Association had their nationals over in Boise. And it was in August where I had an early season mule deer hunt over there. So I actually cut that short to go over and visit some friends that I haven't seen in a really long time. And, and Josh Coons made sure that he told everybody about it. And so we had our, um, when we had our week long, um, team meeting up in Missoula, it was just relentless jokes from everybody, everybody there. So thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> You're welcome. Now I got a, I got a more serious question. Sure. Does boomerang throwing translate into casting a fly at all? Does it? No, no, it does not. Um, I would say the only thing is, and, and this is everything in life. Uh, I was actually explaining this to Pam about training dogs this morning is, you know, everything you do needs to be repeatable. If you're going to be good at something, you need to be able to repeat what you did to get favorable, favorable resort results. And, you know, if you're throwing a boomerang, it's like throwing a baseball or casting a fly rod or shooting a bow. If you aren't doing the same thing over and over again, you're never going to be good at it. Correct. Correct. Yeah, so that well, segue is pretty good. Looks like you got a new pup. Uh, I don't. I have, well, I have my two boys here, uh, Holt, which is going to turn two at the end of this month. And then I have uh, Gifford, who will turn a year on the 12th of May. And we actually have a girl here that's on a staycation. Um, from a breeder out of Washington that bred Gifford and we uh, leased her. And so she is here right now and we are going to breed her and have a, uh, have a litter of puppies this summer. So don't technically don't have a new pup, but hopefully I'm going to have a pile of them come July. Okay. What were their names again? Holt and Gifford. Oh. What happened to the one that uh, went in the York? York yeah. is, who, yeah, York is who I brought on the Boundary Waters. Um, awesome dog. He had, he had, um, he had some health issues and we had to put him down last August. Um, oh. It's kind of weird because we talked to the breeder about getting Gifford back in June and we actually turned him down because Holt was just being kind of, um, I don't want to say a dick, but he was cranky. He, he wasn't feeling well. And, um, we told her we weren't going to take the puppy because of that. We just didn't want to bring a new puppy into the house. And we went to a show out in Washington um, and saw the saw Gifford's litter mate. And Pam fell in love with him. And it's like, yeah, we're taking him home. And we took him home. And a week later, unfortunately, we had to put Holt down. He just he had a he had a back issue and he had problems getting up and moving around. And uh, yeah, six years old, we had a we had to do that, which was unfortunate. Yeah, sorry to hear that. Yeah, thank you. He was a he was an awesome dog, um, as all labs are. But yeah, he was he was pretty cool on that Boundary Waters trip. He he had a blast. He never flipped a canoe. I did it once, but he never flipped a canoe. stayed stayed in a flying and hung out at camp and ran around and had a blast. And as soon as he was done, he would just walk up to the teepee and expect us to uh, open it up for him if. Um, if we weren't using those prototype liners at the time, the full liners, he would have just crawled underneath. But he needed somebody to unzip them for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so back to the boundary waters. Marital harmony in a canoe. 
Mine didn't uh, work out very well. No, no. I think for, yeah, for both of us, it doesn't. Um, on either side, you know, obviously you and I are going to say, well, we know what the hell we're doing and they didn't. Um, it, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work too well sometimes when you're, when you're trying to avoid going in circles, when you're paddling in a lake and, and <laughs> yeah. everything right. Um, I do have to say, as I came back from the boundary waters and saying that we all, we, we all did a great job. We all had different skills that we did everything, um, you know, while we were in camp, whether it was cooking or gathering firewood or Angie keeping the wood dry the whole time is that we all did different things. That was, that was good. And, may have been frustrated with with our spouse but for the most part i think that uh i think we got along pretty well um and didn't, no, it was, didn't uh, kill each other yeah it was, it was a good it was a fun trip but i know a couple times like when it was raining on a lake angie was frustrated at my canoeing skills and a couple times in that little creek we came into I kind of ran into the brush on the side and wasn't <laughs> a big fan of that either. No, and they and 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 they never are. Uh, but that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you, Dennis? You got some stories? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want, um, so so Boundary Water is kind of a. I grew up in northern Wisconsin. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, and, and my wife and I, our first, I mean, we had hung out for a little bit, but pretty much our first, like, uh, date, I guess, or, like, extended date, we did a week in the Boundary Waters together, um, like, within the first wow. month or so of, of hanging out. So, uh, we survived, and that was almost eight years ago now, I think, or something. That was early on. That doesn't count. You that do doesn't that. count? No? Honeymoon period still? <laughs> 20 year yeah, anniversary. Nice. I actually did that. Um, yeah. yeah. My, my wife will tell you a story is that we, um, we met online and we were supposed to go on our first date on Sunday on a Sunday. And I called her on Thursday and said, you know what? I'm not going to be able to make it. Um, I'm going fishing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> she was like, okay, fine. And then I think it was like Friday evening. I looked at the weather and the weather was just shit. It was just, it was going to be nasty on the weekend. So I called her up and I said, yeah, I'll go. I'll see you. <laughs> and uh, she told me after that, if that I didn't show up that day, she never would have talked to me again. So so that was a microcosm of the relationship to come. <laughs> Pretty much. You know, it's, what, it's a line in the sand. She, she knew what priorities came first. Mm -hmm. It hasn't always worked that way since then. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the Boundary Riders is a cool spot. We'll uh, we should we should talk. Uh, maybe we can get another trip going. Um, I'd love to. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to go up there and do more fishing, explore more. The other thing it, it intrigues me is seeing some of the pictures of whitetail that are up there, and maybe mm. doing it in the fall where you could fish and then hunt for birds and and for whitetail, but I think that that may be a, a little bit harder um, trip to put together. But just to go and fish, um, I think that when we went, it was a great time. We went the week before Memorial Day, so bugs weren't that bad. Uh, weather was not necessarily favorable, although we had some good days, but the fishing was good. Um, fish up in the shallows and 
the number one, there were no bugs. I mean, I hmm. hear the whole stories of how mm-hmm. bad boundary waters can be, and I and I don't want to be there at that time. Yeah, yeah. It was no, when we left, what's that? It was starting to get buggy when we left. Yeah, I mean, there were times where we had to wear head nets, but people were like, yeah. eh, "These bugs aren't bad." Yeah. So I can't imagine going there in June or July. July, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they pick you up and right away, man. Doesn't sound like fun. Yeah, that's pretty. Maybe you could harness them as energy to pull the canoe. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> like a big well, net with the swarm, and if you get the swarm to all go in one direction, so. Yeah, or what we need to do is find those new super wasps that I guess are flying around in Northwest that that are like looks like they're an inch or two long yeah what are, are they yeah they're a, a killer wasp or what do they call them i don't know they look pretty frightening i don't want to be around them yeah they, they do look very frightening well the problem, um, thing is they're after the honeybees right or are they yeah, still bees? Yeah. and we're already kind of having problems with bees if i recall like there's not enough bees and not enough pollination going on although i don't want to pretend i'm some sort of biologist we'll save that for upcoming episodes with someone who actually knows something yeah yep. get get a bee expert on here somebody somebody reach out to us we need we need a bee expert talk talk yeah. about the killer <laughs> the killer bee so and send an email to podcast at seekoutside.com i'll go ahead and create that right now you guys continue on I'm go. sure you'll find one. I'm sure you'll find one. I'm trying to think if there's anybody at BHA that is uh, that that are part-time beekeepers that they do that as a hobby. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I'll look into it. But yeah, if you have a if, if we could find a bee expert, get on the podcast. Um, I got a I got a question. So like the so you're you're now the uh, public access coordinator for BHA. Sure. Um, what what success stories do you have you know because it's always it always seems like when we talk it's it's you know that we got a lawsuit we got this we you know it, not necessarily with you guys but just you know in, in general um conservation issues are are kind of wrapped up that way most of the time and we don't hear or you know a lot of those like oh yeah we we got access here we you know these landowners work together and now you can hike in um i don't know if you can talk to that a little bit no i think you're right um that's the one thing i always said about water is that if you look at the history of water access is that always there's always a lawsuit involved that's just the way it works whether it's whether if we look at colorado what's going on there now with um with an angler that's that's suing the state to try to gain access on the arkansas river is that's how it starts. Mm. That's how it started in in South Dakota. That's where everywhere it's there's a lawsuit. Then the courts or someone will say that this needs to go through legislation and the, the laws need to be defined. And it doesn't happen that way in land. It's it, a lot of times in terrestrial issues. There are it, it may be a misunderstanding. Um, could be something in the case of the Bundys or, you know, someone like that, that just they feel that Mm -hmm. the federal government or whatever government doesn't doesn't have the right to tell them what they can do or it's or it's just a law. And it may be a shitty law where 
people work and they work hard to get these get these repealed or to have them favorable to have access to public lands. Um, but some of them are really easy. Uh, I like to use an example of something that I worked on and it was a little over a year ago here in Teton Valley and um, acquired a new piece of land here and the landowner put a gate up and had signage saying that it was private property and you couldn't get through this access. And I started getting calls from especially bird hunters. It's a great place to hunt grouse. And, and they were saying that they were getting harassed. The landowner had a camera on a fence post was watching what people were doing. His caretaker was, was breaking people's balls. And so the first thing I did was call the County to find out. And I was talking to a commissioner and they're going, we're looking into it. Um, so then I called the the county engineer and he said, no, I've been cutting the locks on the gate, trying to remove it. It's public land. It's an access. And I just started looking into it and I called the county attorney and she said, well, it's, we're working on it. We're talking to the landowner. I've been texting with his attorney and it's going to be at least 30 hours of work. So it's going to be a while. Um, I called the BLM. I got the deeds. Called the engineer again. Looked at the maps. I got the resolution from the county from back in like '88. Uh, was able to find that. I think it was one of the first things that the county had online electronically. And with a total of three hours' work, the county commissioners said, "Here, we're setting a resolution that this is public land. It's a public road." The landowner can't stop that. And it just shows that if someone is to put time and energy into something that you're going to get shit done. Um, since then, the landowner has worked with the, is working with the BLM and working with the county and him and another landowner are going to build a parking lot and they're going to improve the area a little bit for people to get in there without messing with his public lands or private lands. So, um, I think that there's a lot of success stories, small like that, that don't get noticed. Um, I think we'll start to see more with the, the Mapland Act that um, the Interior is doing for the Forest Service and the BLM, where it allows the, the public to identify places that should be public or are blocked in, in the first place. And obviously, we have tons of landlocked BLM. Um, you know, TRCP and Onyx came out with that uh, report last year that showed just how many acres of landlocked land we have. So that's one of them. Um, Onyx has a really cool program um, that they just they just launched a pilot that we're going to help them work with, where it is going to allow Onyx Maps users to uh, mark and report places um, that they feel there can be better access, whether it is through an illegal gating or posting, um, whether it could be a piece of land that's for sale, that's next to a landlocked piece of BLM or forest service property. So then maybe there's, it could be used uh, with LWCF funds in the future to open up more access. Um, yeah, but, that, that that's really cool, right? Because it, it um, activates everyone out there using to easily be able to identify, I don't know, you put down a waypoint, right? You're like, uh, this this yeah. spot right here, man, and, and here's a phone number that I saw on the tree. Right, and there's, there's it, it, it could work really well. We're, uh, we're optimistic for it. We're going to push it when they do launch. Um, 
like I said, they did the soft launch. It, it obviously started during the pandemic, so they weren't getting as as much response as they wanted. Um, a lot of them were already um, things that people that people were aware of. It wasn't anything. It wasn't something that they found. Um, sure, there was one report that the guy just wanted to hunt deer on his neighbor's property because that's where they hung out. Um, <laughs> There, yeah. He's like, you should buy. You should buy this this forty over here, right? And I hope I don't get those emails. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to answer them. (laughs) But the other thing is, people I think are afraid. Is why are they going to give an access point? You know, are they necessarily going to give a waypoint somewhere where they may be hunting? Sure. Uh, Yeah. Where does that information go? Mm -hmm. So I think that there there may be a little bit of concern there, but I think that we're getting these tools that are really cool that we can hopefully identify more places that land can be opened up, um, that there's a problem. You know, we see, we see a lot of people doing work, um, you know, take Brad Brooks for an example and, and his brother, Brian Brooks, Brad runs our galley outdoors and Brian is, uh, with the Idaho wildlife Federation. But when there started being these land closures, road closures over in Western Idaho is, you know, Brad took a really deep dive into what was going on with the laws and and they got people noticing what was going on there and they're working on it. And, um, you know, it's the same two uh, billionaire brothers who own a bunch of land over there that they were that they were fighting. But it shows that if you have people dedicated to this, we get it done. It's a, a lot of times with terrestrial issues is it's not as hard as people think it's it's common sense it's coming to an agreement not losing your head or cutting the the locks off the gates it's it's going to the right authorities and and trying to get this figured out yeah and and maybe even just talking to each other right like like having those conversations yeah yeah it's a good start um we know people don't do anymore Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah if we were to do more of that i think that there would be a lot more agreements and better access no, I think we should share just share memes over social and call that all dialogue has to be done with a <laughs> meme over social. We're there, Kevin. We are there. Uh, it gets pretty hard to to read all the social media and wade through it. And um, um, I'm glad I, I I can't say that I have a level head a lot of the times, but I take a lot of the social media with. Um, with a grain of salt and kind of laugh it off. And it, even though they're my friends, I know that they may have different feelings about certain things, but whatever. Um, I was just, ju- we, I was just arguing with, with, with someone who's a BHA member over in Boise and we were arguing about some political thing. And he's like, well, if you have a problem with it, if you could call me. And I said, if I call you, I'm not going to talk about politics. I'm going to talk about what tags you applied for or, where we're going to go fishing. And, you know, he texted me and goes, that's awesome. And I just caught my first trout on the fly rod. And that's the stories I want to hear. I want, you know, if I'm going to talk to somebody that from social media is, that's what I want to talk about. Okay. So for Spallies, back to the fly rod, should I take the five weight or the eight weight? <laughs> for, uh, take the five weight. Or should I go all the way down to the Tankara rig? 
uh, don't get me started on Thinkara. Oh, <laughs> the Thinkara memes are priceless. <laughs> oh, boy. oh boy, we met a purist here. <laughs> I'm just going to create a meme right now and tag Rob Parkinson. I really sure. like reels. I really like reels. There's times they're convenient. And you could do the same thing. You know, you could just put 12 feet of line outside of your fly rod and Tankara fish. Just lock your reel so it can't move, right? Yeah. Same thing. Yep. Just hold on to the line. Same thing. But then <laughs> I, will to, I will have to admit that I fished a little creek in the scapegoat with Hal Herring, and he had his fly rod. I had my Tankara rod. And I was a little jealous of his ability to just reel all the line in. So mm -hmm. I had to wrap it up every time we moved from one right. hole to another. So in winter ten car rod, like eleven feet, and his he was probably using like an eight foot fly rod. So you know he had he can maneuver better. And although uh, I might I don't know how knows the creek well, but I might have outfished him once he gave me his secret fly. Yep, and well, it's, was it really the secret fly or was it the technique? It, it was a secret fly because I had I've usually with Tinkara just like in high alpine lakes just use the that Tinkara fly you know how since you do a lot of fly stuff there and I'm going to really sound like a, a novice here right so as you as you go as you create the meme on social media you know how their their little wingy things are kind of reversed on yep. Tinkara so they give it a little action when you move it. Um, that and it's like a little nymph pattern, and that's what I was using, and I wasn't catching anything. And Hal was like, "Well, they usually seem to really favor this in this little creek," and so I put that on. And sure, man, trout, trout just started hopping on the rod. Yeah, you don't need specific uh, ten car flies. Um, so I think it's a marketing ploy. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if you look at what Yvonne Chouinard does, uh, and everybody knows he wrote a book on Tenkara fishing, and it's not all he does, but that's a lot of what he does. And it, it just it creates a simple way of fishing and um, a great way to teach kids as he does. But he fishes one fly. He ties a pheasant tail. That's all he fishes. He ties it yeah. in different sizes, and that's all he does. Um, and that fly works for everything. I believe he said he's caught bonefish on it. Um, he's got steelhead on it. Obviously, trout, all different kinds of things. Um, and that's all. That's all he uses um, it, for the most part is a is a pheasant tail. Um, that's not to say that he uses other things. And he's um, he's he's like a little kid when he fishes. It's it's kind of neat. I've uh, I've been fortunate enough to fish with him before and. He makes it simple, but he just loves catching fish. Yeah, he seems that way. I mean, I, I, I don't know him. I saw him uh, do the podcast with Hal a couple of years ago, right? I sat in on that, and he seemed to be a guy who just loves to go fish. So. He does. That's that's what he does. Like a, he he really is like a little kid. It's 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 awesome to see, especially someone that um, is as um, influential as he is is that he goes out and he does things on his own terms and has fun and, and really doesn't care what anybody else says. He just, he does not give a shit. It's, it's really cool to see. So why should you tie your own flies? Uh, it's not to save money. It's definitely <laughs> not to save money. I mean, I show people, you know, the vice that I tie on, I, I think sells for 800 bucks now. And 
uh, all the tools and materials and I'm kind of a scissor junkie. So I have, um, I have scissors that are a hundred bucks a piece and there's probably like five of them sitting in my tying caddy right now. Um, so it's not to save money. I, I think it's for creativity to be able to get things that you potentially can't get commercially. Um, there are a lot of phenomenal commercially flied, commercially tied flies, but, um, I'm just able to tie some things that I that I just know you can't get, whether it's using a different material or just a different style of tying. Um, and it's, I, I guess, maybe just like painting or building arrows or building bows or it, w whatever somebody's going to do. Or in your case, building tents. Uh, you know, you could have definitely just gone out and bought a tent. It's not going to be as good as yours, but uh, you have it. I think that fly tying is the same thing. And I live in Teton Valley where we get about 600 inches of snow every winter and there's nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> this travel gets a little old. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I, I don't think that there's a really a benefit to tying flies. I mean, it's not, I want to tell somebody that was getting into fishing that, Oh, you need to tie your own flies. Um, or you're going to starve. Yeah, you're, you're better off just going to the store, buying buying a pocket full of flies, you know, a little box, and and going fishing. Um, support your local fly shop and get some knowledge. You know, that's the number one thing we tell people. And you know my background; everybody else doesn't. But I worked in uh, in fly fishing in the retail world for quite a ways and uh, for quite a while. And if somebody comes in and buys some flies, they're probably going to get better information than if you don't buy anything. That's a very important point, right? Like when you're getting into something, it, it pays to go. I mean, even if you just go get a couple flies at the fly shop, you know, in, in just example where, where I'm at in Grand Junction, if you go in there and they're like the happiest people in the world to tell you like, oh, this lake, right? Go, mm -hmm. go, go this way, uh, go this way. You might want to get this one, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And, and it's just that's invaluable information when you're starting out and you're just getting going. Well, that kind of the value of the local fly shop, right? And you and I had a little conversation maybe when we kind of talked about scheduling this podcast a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, and you were talking about how the 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 retail fly uh, fly fishing business makers were really getting killed by this COVID stuff, right? Because while you can go yeah. While you can go online and buy a fly rod, it's much better if you go to the local fly shop or it's highly recommended in a lot of cases. It is. It's it. You, I'll tell you why. There's there's a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, say you were to buy a rod and reel setup if you were just starting off. You're going to get a rod and we could go as far as deep as certain fly rods have different ferrules than other fly rods where the pieces go together. And I'll give you an example. A friend of mine just bought a Scott radiant fly rod, which has a spigot ferrule. It's, it's different than most rods as far as their ferrule. And he called me up and he was going to try to push those two pieces together. So, um, graphite was touching graphite. Well, that's not the way these ferrules work. So, without knowing someone in the business or going to a fly shop, he potentially could have 
broke or damaged his $800 fly rod within 15 minutes of owning it. But then when you get it, you get a rod reel line. If you're real left-handed, the reel set up right-handed, you need someone to show you how to do that. You can do those resources, but then you need the line in the back and put on and you need to learn how to tie knots. And that's just to get started. So while you can learn that online, YouTube, the information that you're going to gain by going to a fly shop and just learning how to do it is invaluable. They're going to teach you how to cast. Um, they're going to teach you how to hold the fly rod. They're going to, and then it gets down to the flies is why are you using this fly? What does it imitate? And here's, here's a secret. The more time you spend in the fly shop talking to the employees there, the better relationship you're going to have. And you're probably going to get deals, the same deals that you would get online. You'd get them from your local fly shop. They're probably going to tell you better places to fish. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I'm not going to say that a fly shop has a standard list where if somebody comes in and says, you know, if you go into the trout hunter at uh, up in Island Park on the Henry's Fork, they're not, they, they don't just tell everybody, go to the log jam. You know, there's not a list of places to go. But they're probably going to say, hey, man, this is this is going on here. You know, there's there's uh, green drakes are happening on the stretch of the river. Go check that out. Um, you're you're going to get better advice. And they, it turns into lifelong friendships as well. It's it's pretty incredible. I've worked in fly shops for, you know, 20, 20 plus years is just some of the friends that I've met because of that or, or through guiding and you know we talk and it may just be once a year about a trip or about gear but other ones i talk to almost on a daily basis so if you were to break down that fly setup right the rod the reel the backing and, mm -hmm. you and the fly and you got to remove the user from this question i'm going to ask you right um what is the most important part like because it can get pricey say i'm a beginner wanting to get in i come in and say i got 250 or 300 bucks that I want to spend getting involved into the sport of fly fishing. Where is it best for me to put my money? The fly line. I figured uh, you'd yes. I, I think it's, it's, it's the fly line. Um, a good line can make a bad rod fish better. A bad, a bad fly line will make a great fly rod fish like shit. If you can't cast because you have the wrong line for whatever your application is, and it's gotten really specific in the last, uh, shoot, 10, 15 years. I mean, I remember when I started fishing with a fly rod, and this was almost 40 years ago, is you had two kinds of lines. You had a floater and you had a sinker and it's not the way now there's floating lines. There's multiple densities of sinking lines. There's different tapers, depending on what you're going to do species specific rod specific. Um, if you know, you went into a, a good fly shop with knowledgeable employees, if you were to walk in there with the fly rod and say, I need a new line. And the first thing they ask you is what kind of rod that do you have? What are you fishing? It's now where the line is matched to the purpose and to in in specifically to rods as opposed to just, oh, I'm, I'm going trout fishing. And I need a five weight line. 
it's it's not that way. I think that the flaw that the line is the is the most important the important part of the of the setup. And as long as you take care of your fly line, it's going to last a long time and and just make your trip more enjoyable. I mean, I, a lot of times I equate it to golf. Is you know Tiger Woods, if you gave him a Walmart club, he's going to hit that ball a mile. You know, is if you give him the top of the line, the best, I don't even know what what club it would be, but if you gave him the best one, he's still going to hit it up at a mile. Why does why does he use the better club as opposed to the worst one? Because it has better rep- repeatability and it's probably lighter, made out of different materials that makes it more comfortable. And that's the same thing with fly rods is People are going, what's the difference between my $100 fly rod and my $900 fly rod? Well, if you're, say you're on a drift boat for a day floating a river and throwing salmon flies, you're making a thousand casts. If you have a rod that's even an eighth of an ounce lighter and has a better swing weight, it's you're going to be more comfortable and you're going to be able to fish all day. Hmm. So you could catch fish. Like I said, we were talking about earlier, Yvonne, pheasant tail. He's caught everything on that fly, one pattern. Clouser minnow, same thing. Dirt flies, I, I, there are situations where flies make a huge difference, but I don't think overall that even factors into the equation. Much more of the line. So if you want to know, <clears throat> I'm not sure if it was you I talked to. I think it was you and I that we said that it would be really cool to go do a trip in the Gila fly fishing. Mm-hmm. You know, that I talked to or that we talked about it, but, um, yeah, it's something that would be cool. I mean, obviously now is not the time. Um, but you know, one of these days, what, uh, so obviously Kevin, Dennis, you guys fish, you guys pack raft, you're camping everywhere. Where's, where's your dream trips to go? Where, where? If you had a if you had to pick a spot right now that I'm going to go that you would go fish, where would it be? Um, well, I'll go first. And that you've done before. Yeah, um, I, I'll go first because uh, I've never saltwater fly fish for anything, right? And so you know, uh, read articles. Um, you know, catching catching bonefish down somewhere where it's really nice, tropical is like nice. on on the top of my list somewhere. You know, um, yeah, that'd be up there. And, and I'm by no means like a good fisherman and, and or fly fisherman at all, but that just seems to be something that I, every time I think about a vacation, I'm like, oh, that'd be a good vacation. <laughs> so that'd I'll give you, I'll give you three. Um, if I was camping or backpacking, where I would like to be right now is somewhere in the canyons in Utah. Um, however, um, not a good idea to go through the Navajo Nation um, territory right now. They're being really crushed by this COVID stuff. You know? Right. Um, Escalante would be awesome, but not really much of a fishing trip. Um, if I was to combine the backpacking, camping, and fishing, it would likely be the Gila right now. Um, nice, relatively nice weather, uh, beautiful mountain scenery. Think about elk, turkey, fish. Well, you're going along, right? Still a little too cold to go up to the boundary waters, which would be, well, maybe it's not 
cold per se. Make sure right. You didn't open up yet there. Right, yeah, right, right. Um, <laughs> although for pure fishing, it would probably be Alaska looking for kings here pretty shortly. You know. Nice. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna fill in as we were talking about this. I also want to throw a great big mouse sometime to a giant rainbow uh-huh. somewhere. Yeah, I think that's like another cool thing, right? Uh, yeah, it just seems insane. Go to this Russia. Cat. Go to Russia. Mouse every day. Yeah, we had uh, we had Ryan Lampers on, and he uh, spent some time over there uh, in Russia catching those great big rainbows and stuff. Um, yeah, interesting podcast for sure. And then, yeah, that seems like a, a whole lot of fun. Yeah, most yeah, people we, think of Ryan as the as the uh, hunter or the the gardener or whatever, but he he guided for seven years up in Alaska and did a bunch of stuff over in Kamchatka, finding steelheads and stuff like that. So that that would probably be my dream trip is Russia Kamchatka for steelhead. Mm, yeah. for, I mean, the rainbows, and I have a friend Will Blair who who runs a outstanding operation over in Kamchatka, uh, fishing on several of the rivers over there. And he talks about it all the time and looks going to throw mice. Definitely. He's the person to talk to, but there's, there's steelhead that, um, just looks phenomenal. And with the North American fishery and the shitter, um, it would be nice to be able to go somewhere right now and, and, Mm -hmm. Consistently or somewhat consistently, at least know your fishing. <laughs> yeah. Um, quick question, because I'm again novice, don't don't know what's going on. Um, steelhead, to me, when I think of someone fishing a fishing steelhead, they're like wrapping up a bunch of line, they're laying it down in front of them, and then they're hucking it out there. Tell tell me about that. So are you talking about two-handed fishing? Yeah, for sure. casting. Um, yeah. So it makes your life easier. Um, okay. It's just more efficient. If you are a good spade caster, um, and I am far from being a good spade caster, is that you could cast 100 plus feet, 100, 150 feet of line with no back cast. You're essentially using a roll cast. And... Um, it just makes it much easier. And, you know, when you're fishing for steelhead, it's a swing. You're covering water. You're making a cast. You're letting it, you're casting across or wherever you are, quartering down, letting it swing. You're taking a step or two downriver and doing it again. And it's just, it's repeatable. It's, um, it's a, it's a great thing that you talk about repeatability when we were talking about it before of, of mm-hmm. doing something is you just get in a flow and that's what you do. And that's what you're just, you're waiting for that tug, but two handed casting. That is, that is the reason why is it just, it's a more efficient way of, of making a cast. Now there are people out there that um, even people that sell spay rods that uh, work for manufacturers that sell spay rods, they will talk about that. They never, they never have found the need to to use one that they could they could just make normal casts, but it's a lot more work to cast a hundred feet with a single hand rod where you're making you're double hauling, you're making plenty of casts to do it, and then you have to worry about your back cast. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of rivers you're fishing for steelhead, you can't wait out deep. The water, the 
Fisher in shallow in the first place, but you just can't make a cat a back cast to be able to get fish fish to them appropriately. Hmm. Um, and it's pretty to watch. Yeah, that, I mean that, and that's it's in, that image is in my head, right? Like it's yeah, it looks really cool. You watch people spay casts that are good at it, and you're just like, damn. And I'm not like that with people. People fly fishing are always like, oh, it's such an art. It's so beautiful to watch. It's like, no, it isn't. It's just like I, I just feel like anything else. You're just you're making a cast. Yeah, it's kind of cool looking, but it's I I don't fight, feel it's an art. Um, fortunate enough to take classes with some of the best the best casters in the world and to sit there and watch them, you're in awe. Um, you know, Travis Johnson, Simon Gosworth, Bruce Berry, those guys can cast. It's just, you just, you, you, you want to put your rod down and walk away and say, I'll, I'll do something else. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it, it's cool. But yeah, steelhead, that's, I think Russia steelhead, that'd be a cool one to do. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> I'm ready. I'll do it. We we can book it. Um, definitely go over there and fish for rainbows um, with the mice, or we can go to Alaska and do it. There's 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 plenty of places that uh, are left that we probably need to go to. Yeah, for sure. Um, cool, man. Well, I think we'll we'll tidy things up. Where? Um, where can everybody find you or find find out more about uh, what you got going on or even just BHA or, or whatnot? You could go to backcountryhunters.org. Um, that's our website, and it's a great resource whether you want to sign up, um, become a member, find your chapter. We do have – we have chapters in, in two Canadian provinces right now. Um, so we're everywhere. Uh, it will probably have all 50 states buttoned up by the end of this year. I know that they're working on it, the, the, the last few stragglers. But you can find information on what we're working on, on uh, public access, whether it's on Pebble Mine or the Boundary Waters or LWCF, which is, uh, which is a big one. And the pandemic kind of uh, shut down um, getting full funding for LWCF, especially after the president tweeted. Uh, before this happened that we needed to get it done and we needed to uh, fund it for the full 900 million. So hopefully people um, get involved with that so we could see that happening. But uh, yeah, backcountryhunters.org is the place to, to, to find all that information. Cool. And you can a life member. Um, I believe you get some seek outside stuff on it as well. Not anymore. No? No, no. That was part of our change. Huh. I think Dennis so, was part of that change. Yeah, sorry guys. That's how I got my <laughs> first. Uh, that's how I got my first tent. My Cimarron was becoming a life member at BHA before I worked for him. I love that thing. Perfect well, for both. We will have uh, opportunities for people to get some stuff at the rendezvous this year. The virtual rendezvous um, nice. that's going on. Uh, people people can sign up and win, and we're going to have a cool little competition. Uh, going on which i can't say too much about yet but uh but yeah that's cool how about if someone wants to get into tying flies where do you send them uh where do you send them um there are plenty of books out there youtube videos uh again your local fly shop will have a great resource of having classes and stuff like that 
Um, honestly, I think that the best place to get instructional fly tying videos is uh, down there in Colorado, Charlie's Fly Box. He's in uh, Arvado, which is just outside of Denver. Uh, Charlie is a phenomenal tire fly designer for Umqua and his videos, I watch them. I actually watch one today on a beetle. Um, he's, he's an incredible fly tire. You learn a lot from him. He makes sure that you can follow along concisely and get and be able to tie whatever pattern that he's tying. Um, BHA did start, like I said, last week, we've, we've done two of them so far as the Friday night ties that is on YouTube as well. Um, and we're going to keep that going for the foreseeable future where we have some really good fly tires um, on board that are doing stuff. The one that we have coming up this week is Garrison Doctor from Rep Your Water. Uh, tied, a, tied a really cool nymph. Um, Zach Williams, our journal editor, tied a chubby Chernobyl last week. And then we're going to see some cool things. We're going to see uh, Josh Mills. Um uses the vertebrae of a fish to tie a fly. Um, <laughs> going to be doing that video, which will be cool. But there, YouTube is a great place to, to, to find resources on how to learn to tie um, and just start simple. And as your abilities get better, um, go from there. Cool, man. Awesome. Oh, by the way, I added the podcast at Seek Outside email. So if you have questions, comments, you want to, Harass Dennis, me, tell us we talk. That's the place to go. Tell us, tell us we're great. You do honeybees. No, you guys don't suck. You're, you're doing a great job. I think that this is um, it's a fun way to get things out there and, and talk to different people. And um, what we see in a lot of these outdoor podcasts, which is it's not disparaging, but it seems to be the same people just going from it's it's a podcaster interviewing a podcaster and and going around in circles and I think it's neat when we're seeing these outdoor companies come up with ones that it it, it offers a different perspective um, and to have three parts with Hal that's uh, that's always <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, that conversation was all over. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. I did a podcast with Hal a while back and we have still not ran it. And I don't know why we drank a lot of whiskey during the podcast, but it was, it was, it was the same way. It went all over the place, but uh, it never aired. And I probably should ask Katie McCallop the reason why that hasn't, that hasn't gone on. <laughs> um, Heather from Heather's choice. And I did a podcast with Abe Henderson from Alaska. Do do it yourself at the Boise Rondi a couple of years ago. And I think it started about nine at night. And I think we left around two 30 in the morning. Wow. And we, yeah. And we drank way, way too much. That one's never aired and I'm totally <laughs> fine with it. Although maybe we should get a bond for a drinking podcast sometime. Yeah. 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 Or a heck of a mountain hunter. But from what Heather said that, uh, you know, they like to drink at their Heather's choice meetings too. <laughs> good. Good. Um, yeah, I mean, these things are all about having fun. I love doing it. Um, I would really like to see. I, I, I'd like to do more. I keep on kicking around the idea of starting a podcast. And then some people will tell me, well, everyone's doing them. And then then you get into work. I'm a, I'm a procrastinator a lot of times. So once I have them, then I'd have to edit them and 
get them out there and I don't know how that would work. Yeah, well, we, we don't know what we're doing either. So we can help you. We can we can do it together. Awesome. Yeah, we, we, we put ours off for like a year. We had the equipment around and we talked about it, talked about it, and this COVID thing. And Dennis, all like, well, what can we do that's productive? Hey, we can start that podcast. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a, it's a good way to bullshit and hopefully people learn things. And yeah, it's, it's yeah. a great exactly. way to go. So, and as you know, we both, I don't know about Dennis, but I know that you get in the car and drive quite a ways. So you're always looking for content to listen to. Um, yep. I'm the same way. Yep. Cool, man. Um, yeah. Well, I uh, appreciate you taking the time coming on and hopefully we get to talk again soon. Um, and maybe even go fishing sometime. Yeah, let's get you up here. I mean, Kevin's been up here a couple of times, never fish, but we could meet in the middle at the uh, Flaming Gorge Green River. We can do that. Um, yeah, or come up here. I'm getting ready to start floating religiously for mushrooms, and all our fishing's going to get really good. So, um, yeah, it's time. Well, I could definitely come up there because uh, I've never really fished up there. So, there you go. Road trip. Road trip. Let's do it. Do a cool, second man. podcast in camp. Yeah, in camp podcast. In oh, a TV. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, man. Thanks, Thanks Rob. Yeah, Thanks, Rob. Talking to you. Stay safe. You too, man. Take care. Hey, everyone. Real quick before you go, I just wanted to say thanks for listening. And if you've been enjoying what you're hearing, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcast. Thank you.